Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, July 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. House passes a defense bill. India launches a historic moon mission. The Pentagon says U.S. cluster bombs are already in Ukraine. Thailand's parliament fails to elect a new prime minister. Jared Kushner testifies before the January 6th grand jury. Hollywood actors join the writer's strike. Myanmar's military regime is accused of murdering political prisoners. Australia names its first woman to lead the central bank. Russian lawmakers pass a bill outlawing gender reassignment. And the WHO says aspartame is safe within limits. In our top story, the House passes a defense spending bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, CNN, ABC News, New York Post, U.S. News and World Report, and Reuters. The U.S. House passed the annual National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, on Friday, setting the Defense Department's policy while pushing through several conservative amendments on abortion, diversity programs, and transgender procedures. The 219 to 210 vote largely broke along party lines, with four Republicans voting nay and four Democrats voting in favor of the bill. The $886 billion defense package includes a ban on the Pentagon paying the travel costs for out-of-state abortions, a ban on sex change procedures for transgender military members, and the abolition of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. The NDAA also increases military spending by $28 billion and includes a 5.2% pay raise for service members. The NDAA, however, is unlikely to pass the Democrat-controlled Senate, which is crafting its own proposal. The Senate version is expected this month, after which the two chambers are expected to meet to reach a compromise bill later this year. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts, and let's start our spins with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. House Republicans stood strong and made sure to pass amendments to the 2024 NDAA that will fight back against the Biden administration's radical social policy that's infecting the nation's military. It's common sense that taxpayers shouldn't be paying for service members' abortions and that sex change operations shouldn't be promoted in the military. Counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. Republicans are using a mandatory defense bill to push their culture war agenda and are hurting the military in the process. The House has passed defense authorization bills for decades on a bipartisan basis without injecting social policy into the discussion. This bill excludes marginalized groups and hurts America's diverse service members. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. India successfully launches a third lunar mission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NDTV, The New York Times, Times of India, Voice of America, Al Jazeera, and The Washington Post. The Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, successfully launched Chandrayaan-3, India's third lunar exploration mission, on a launch vehicle Mark III rocket from Sriharikota off the country's east coast on Friday. Chandrayaan-3 follows the ISRO's Chandrayaan-2, which failed a desired soft landing on the moon in September 2019 after the lander's trajectory diverged from the planned path at an altitude of about 1.3 miles from the lunar surface. 
The mission is reportedly designed to deploy a lander and rover near the moon's south pole on August 23rd. One of its payloads is expected to look at the Earth from the moon to study its habitable planet-like features and use this information to explore exoplanets in the future. NASA is collaborating with India, which has reportedly spent about $75 million on its third moon mission, to send Indian astronauts to the International Space Station in 2024 and into the moon's orbit by 2025. If successful, Chandrayaan-3 will make India only the fourth nation, after the United States, the former Soviet Union, and China, to have touched down a lander on the moon's surface, and the first nation to land near its south pole. In 2014, India became the first Asian country to reach Mars, when it put the Mangalyaan, which is Hindi for Mars craft, probe into orbit around the red planet for $72 million. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Indian Express. India is at the forefront of cutting space costs, which is why the success of the Chandrayaan-3 mission could make New Delhi a future leader in the space market. In addition, Chandrayaan-3 could bolster investor confidence in India's domestic space technology, propel technological advancements in its science and research missions, and help shape the country's role in future lunar exploration. The moon landing is just the start of bigger space adventures for ISRO. The Space Review brings us Narrative B. Trondrayan 3 is trying to do what Trondrayan 2 couldn't at the cost of millions of taxpayer money, spending $75 million on a mission that most likely will fail. Landing on the moon is challenging as it requires multiple high-tech systems to align precisely at a time when the economic growth is stagnant, is incomprehensible, and irresponsible. While India may have great space scientists, most of its space exploration missions are glitzy technology shows rather than long-term space voyages that collect significant data. The Metaculous Prediction community brings us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 0.5% chance that India will have a successful crude mood landing before 2027. News coming from the Pentagon as U.S. cluster bombs are already in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum. RT International, CNN, Euronews, and Al Jazeera. Lieutenant General Douglas Sims, the Director of Operations for the Joint Staff, on Thursday acknowledged that U.S.-made cluster bombs intended for Kyiv have already been delivered to Ukraine. Ukrainian General Alexander Tarnavsky, commander of the Tavria Joint Forces Operation, also confirmed that Kyiv forces had just received them, but said the cluster bombs hadn't been used. Tarnavsky further commented that the munitions could radically change the situation on the battlefield. Washington claims that Ukraine would not use the cluster bombs, which are banned in over 100 countries, anywhere near the civilian population. Additionally, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has argued that Kyiv would minimize the long-term threat to civilians when using the cluster bombs by prioritizing demining efforts. Meanwhile, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has warned that by continuing to provide dangerous weapons to Ukraine, the U.S. and its NATO satellites create the risk of a direct armed confrontation with Russia. He added that such behavior may lead to catastrophic consequences. The warning comes after the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on the sidelines of the NATO summit on Wednesday that F-16s will be transferred to Ukraine, likely from European countries that have excess F-16 supplies. Russian President Vladimir Putin also warned that the supply of sophisticated American or European munitions to Kyiv would not change the war's outcome, adding that foreign-made tanks are a priority target for Russian forces in Ukraine. All right, thanks, Eric. CNN brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The transfer of cluster bombs to Ukraine will immediately improve Kyiv's firepower and help it punch through Russian defensive lines. 
The prospects of Ukraine's counteroffensive now look far more successful, and Moscow is likely to be pushed to the negotiation table. Kyiv is committed to using American weapons to destroy the Russian invaders and save Ukrainian lives. New York Times brings us the establishment critical narrative. Ukraine is in an existential fight for survival and deserves access to weaponry. However, sending cluster bombs to Kyiv when what Ukraine really needs is long-range precision missiles is senseless. Moreover, while cluster bombs could bring Kyiv a temporary battlefield advantage, they will inflict devastating damage to civilians, particularly if fired at densely populated areas, and remain a serious threat for years following the conflict. And a pro-Russian narrative from RT. Sending cluster munitions to Ukraine is an act of desperation that shows the failure of the Ukrainian military's attempts to carry out an offensive against Russia. In addition, by sending more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine, the U.S. is escalating tensions with Moscow, despite the latter holding a superior arsenal that is more than able to quash Ukraine's military capability. The Metaculous Prediction community says that there's a 2% chance that a radiological dirty bomb will be detonated in Ukraine or Russia before 2024. Thailand's National Assembly fails to elect a new prime minister. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, France 24, The Guardian, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, Thailand's National Assembly was unable to elect a new prime minister for the country as move-forward leader Peter Lim Jaroenrat, whose party won the most seats in May's general election, failed to secure the support of a majority of lawmakers. Pita, who stood for prime minister unopposed, was 51 votes short of a majority. In Thailand, the prime minister is selected by the 749 members of the bicameral legislature. While the Move Forward Party commands a majority in the lower house, the 249 members of the unelected upper house were all appointed by a previous military government and broadly opposed Move Forward's progressive agenda. In statements after the vote, PETA thanked the 13 senators who voted for him, while telling voters he's not giving up. Two days have been set aside next week for a new vote where PETA can once again run for office. Move Forward's reform agenda, which includes possible reforms to Thailand's royal defamation laws, has galvanized conservative opposition to PETA. Criticism of Thailand's monarchy can lead to up to 15 years in prison, with PETA insisting that he supports the Thai royal family. A candidate from Move Forward's coalition partner, the Pew Thai Party, could emerge to end the stalemate and end Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha's reign, who took power in the 2014 military coup. PETA faces two legal cases in front of the Constitutional Court over a campaign law dispute and an allegation that Move Forward's policies amount to an overthrow of the monarchy. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Washington Post is bringing us the first spin. It is a left narrative. The will of the Thai people must be respected and unelected regime bureaucrats have no right to interfere in the democratic process. The people of Thailand have overwhelmingly rejected military rule and give a ringing endorsement to move forward progressive agenda. This undue meddling is paternalistic and treats Thais as if they can't govern themselves. Pro-junta politicians must stop obstructing the will of the people. Contrast that with this right narrative spin from Kosad. The pro-democracy coalition must be pragmatic if they wish to have the reins of power passed over, and it would be utter folly for PETA to run once again. The coalition must coalesce around a more moderate leader for the next prime minister vote, one without pending legal cases or who excites such stark opinions from the public. The monarchy is a third rail in Thai politics, and perhaps the pro-democracy party should compromise on that point if they wish to form a government. 
According to a recent report, Jared Kushner testified to the January 6th grand jury. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, USA Today, BBC News, and CNN. On Thursday, the New York Times, citing four anonymous sources, reported that former President Donald Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner was among several witnesses to testify over the past several weeks to the federal grand jury investigating Trump's actions after the 2020 presidential election. The line of questioning Kushner and the other witnesses faced reportedly included efforts to discern whether Trump believed he had won the election while he attempted to maintain power. Sources say Kushner told prosecutors that, as far as he knew, Trump believed the election was stolen, which contradicts former White House communications director Alyssa Farah Griffin's testimony that Trump asked if she could believe that he lost to Joe Biden. This investigation is being overseen by special counsel Jack Smith, who has also been tasked by U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to lead the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents after his presidency. Former VP Mike Pence and former Trump aide Hope Hicks have reportedly also testified for the grand jury. Trump's daughter Ivanka has been subpoenaed but hasn't yet testified. Thanks for that rundown of the facts of this continuing story, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Kushner's appearance before the grand jury is going to do more than just determine how much Trump was pushing his false narrative about the election being stolen from him. This testimony could also lead to an expansion of the case to include the post-election fundraising Kushner was involved in because it could mean Trump and his colleagues were defrauding donors. Breitbart is giving us the pro-Trump narrative. Smith and his connections are all blatantly anti-Trump, and there's seemingly nothing he won't do as part of this witch hunt to derail Trump's attempt to return to the White House in 2024, even grilling the former president's closest family members. Smith has a history of prosecuting elected officials and losing, and this is just the latest saga in his political vengeance. And there's a nerd narrative from Attaculus. They predict there's a 33% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Hollywood actors join the writer's strike after talks fail. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Deadline, USA Today, BBC News, and the New York Times. On Thursday, the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG-AFTRA, announced that it will join picket lines with the Writers Guild of America in their first double strike since 1960. The announcement comes after negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and major Hollywood studios broke down on Wednesday. Last month, 98% of the Actors Guild members voted in favor of strike action if a deal couldn't be reached. The Writers Guild has been striking since May 2nd over pay and work conditions, while the Actors Guild is seeking a fair split of streaming profits and restrictions on the use of artificial intelligence. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the group negotiating on behalf of Hollywood studios and streaming platforms, claims that SAG-AFTRA dismissed its offer of historic pay and residual increases including a groundbreaking AI proposal. The strike, which reportedly has the backing of A-listers including Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence, will likely prevent top Hollywood actors, including Robert Downey Jr. and Emily Blunt, from promoting Hollywood's upcoming releases. While the Writers Guild strike has already shut down late-night TV productions, the SAG-AFTRA strike could affect the fall TV lineup and films slated for release next summer if the impasse is not ended by autumn. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is Narrative A coming from LA Times. This once-in-a-generation double strike, which shows that little progress is being made on Hollywood's labor disputes, will directly affect thousands in California and Los Angeles. Writers' and actors' pay has been severely eroded with the streaming revolution, while artificial intelligence threatens to replace creative professionals. 
Hollywood studios must pay their writers and actors a fair share of their shows and movies' success. And Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. Hollywood studios and streaming services have been losing money in their bid to gain subscribers and a foothold in the industry's digital future. The Writers and Actors Guild must understand the difficulty of balancing spending and profitability with attracting and retaining subscribers in an uncertain economy. The union should end their strikes. Entertainment companies are not as powerful or lucrative as they used to be, yet still offer contracts that are as competitive as possible. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that an original, wholly AI-generated feature film will rank number one on a popular streaming service by January of the year 2030. According to a recent report, Myanmar has been accused of political extrajudicial killings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, and the Irrawaddy. A statement from the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, or AAPP, a group that monitors civilian deaths and arrests globally, has claimed that Myanmar has murdered dozens of political prisoners and has sometimes used the pretense of prison escape or transfer to explain their deaths. The organization has alleged that 37 political prisoners from Kiaksakaw Prison in Daikyu have gone missing or died, and families have allegedly received little to no information about the circumstances of their deaths or whereabouts. In one incident, prison officials reported that political prisoner Sign Nguyen had died of gastrointestinal bleeding, despite reports from other inmates that Nguyen had been taken from the prison and interrogated. His family reports that bruises were found on his body at the time of his death. Since Myanmar's 2021 military coup, over 23,800 people have been reportedly arrested for opposing the government, with 20,000 of them remaining in custody. Dozens of political prisoners remain on death row, with the country reinstating the death penalty for the first time in decades last year. At least 3,700 have been killed by the military regime and 150 dissidents have died in prison from poor health care, mistreatment, and torture or interrogation. Prison conditions in Myanmar were substandard well before the coup, with the regime allegedly moving the worst abuses into interrogation centers. Myanmar's national unity government, established by deposed lawmakers, has called on the global community to do more to help the nation's political prisoners. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. Human Rights Watch brings us Narrative A. A humanitarian disaster in Myanmar is unfolding in real time as the military regime continues to force the Southeast Asian nation to stiffer repression, even amid the ongoing Rohingya crisis. The global community should not be legitimizing a government that has essentially outlawed dissent against its regime. International organizations and the rules-based order should do everything in their power to see Myanmar return to democratic rule. East Asia Forum is bringing us Narrative B. The situation in Myanmar can only ever be resolved by the citizens of the country, not through foreign intervention. Myanmar enjoys regular relations with regional partners such as China, Japan, and Thailand, making Western sanctions on the regime ineffective. The lack of global unity only highlights that change in Myanmar can only come from within, as the West lacks the leverage to exert significant influence on the situation. Here's a movie uh, recommendation for everybody, Escape Plan. It came out in 2013. It has Stallone and Arnold both in it together. And it's like legitimately, a, it's a pr pretty good movie, a pretty good fun movie, Escape Plan. Stallone is someone who creates unbreakable, unbreakoutable jails. And then through some horrible turn of events, he gets put in one of his own creations and then has to break out with Arnold's uh, It's cool. Okay. I'll check that one out. Australia names its first woman to lead its central bank. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Australia's ABC News, NCA Newswire, Al Jazeera, and CNBC. Michelle Bullock has been announced as the next head of the Reserve Bank of Australia, becoming the first woman to take charge of the country's central bank. Bullock, who is currently deputy governor of the bank, will replace Philip Lowe, who will consequently become the first governor in nearly three decades whose term the government has chosen not to extend. Bullock has sat on the bank's board as deputy since April 2022 and has worked at the Central Bank since 1985. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese described Bullock as eminently qualified to lead the institution. Lowe was replaced following criticism of the bank's interest rate rises, having announced 12 consecutive hikes beginning in May 2022. Lowe stated that the bank was in very good hands under Bullock's leadership. Inflation for May sat at 5.6%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, with unemployment also sitting at 3.5%. Those are the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from The Guardian. Bullock has the potential to both provide stability at a time of economic uncertainty, as well as to provide reform at a time of encouraging signs for the world's developed economies. And Financial Review brings us the establishment critical narrative. Philip Lowe has become the fall guy for both Anthony Albanese and Treasurer Jim Chalmers, despite taking similar policy measures to many other global central bank governors. The reality is that many of the requirements to rejuvenate Australia's economy must stem from a correction of mistakes, not from the central bank, but the government. This context must be applied to the news of Bullock's historic appointment. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. It says there's a 53% chance that Australia will enter a recession before 2026. So I guess this belt tightening down under means uh, put another shrimp on the Barbie. No, no, no. We, we've got enough shrimp on the Barbie already. The amount that we have on the Barbie is fine. <laughs> That's right. You know what? You're right. Well, they already have some on the Barbie because they say put another, another shrimp, shrimp on, the Barbie. on the Barbie. You're right. So just don't do that. We yeah. have some on the Barbie and then we'll make do with that. Maybe have some salad or something. I don't know. We, we're, yeah. we're fine. Good advice. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> News coming from Russia as Duma passes a bill banning sex change operations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, TASS, The Washington Times, and Fox News. Russia's state Duma, the lower house of parliament, passed a bill Friday that would ban sex change operations and prohibit Russians from legally changing their gender on identity documents. The unanimously passed bill includes an exception for medical interventions used to treat congenital anomalies. Clauses were added in Thursday's second reading that would annul marriages in which a spouse changed his gender and bar transgender people from fostering or adopting children. Duma Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin and the leaders of all five party factions submitted the bill. The ban on medical or pharmaceutical gender reassignment treatments also includes an exception for diseases associated with atypical genitalia in children, subject to approval by a commission that reports to the Russian Health Ministry. The bill is all but certain to be enacted, but it must go through a formal process of being passed by the Kremlin-controlled upper chamber, the Federation Council, before President Putin can officially sign it into law. This is the latest legislation related to LGBTQ issues in recent years, as President Putin has pushed laws that promote so-called traditional values, including a 2013 ban on propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. All right, Eric, the pro-Russian narrative comes from RT. Russia cannot be forced to adhere to the radical anti-family ideology that has infected the West over the last few years. Russian politicians are determined to protect their people from woke ideology that has convinced thousands of people that they can and should somehow change their gender. 
Russia will not indulge in ideologies that undermine traditional family values. The Moscow Times gives us an anti-Russia narrative. LGBTQ people and very acutely trans people are under attack in a horrific way that completely denies their humanity. Putin and his puppets in parliament are marginalizing those already vulnerable and passing laws that will only create a black market for hormone substitutes. This latest attack on LGBTQ people is an urgent human rights issue. Our final story, the WHO says aspartame is safe within limits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, CNBC, The Guardian, ABC News, The New York Times, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, two groups linked to the World Health Organization declared the artificial sweetener aspartame as a, quote, possible carcinogen, but termed it safe to consume in moderation and at current agreed-upon levels. In its first declaration, the International Agency for Research on Cancer said aspartame, found in thousands of sugar-free products like diet sodas, met the set criteria of possible carcinogen, which means there's limited evidence that it can cause cancer. Meanwhile, the WHO and the Food and Agricultural Organization Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives acknowledged it didn't have convincing evidence of harm caused by aspartame, yet recommended that people keep their aspartame consumption levels below 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight a day. However, the U.S. Food and Drug Association rejected the international agency's conclusion that aspartame is a possible carcinogen, saying FDA scientists do not have safety concerns when aspartame is used under the approved conditions. Aspartame, a white, odorless power about 200 times sweeter than sugar, was approved in 1974 by the U.S. FDA with an acceptable daily intake of 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. But in 1981, the U.N. set the safe daily limit at 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. The WHO suggests that in terms of aspartame consumption, people weighing 60 to 70 kilograms, that's 132 to 154 pounds, can safely drink 9 to 14 cans of diet soda per day, reportedly 10 times what most adults currently consume. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Washington Post is giving us narrative A for this story. Listing aspartame as a possible carcinogen is a call for additional research into its health effects, such as links to type 2 diabetes and cerebrovascular disease, but not to cause panic among consumers of the popular artificial sweetener. The food and beverage industry must not be afraid of more scrutiny to vindicate their product's safety further. There's no cause for alarm with aspartame. U.S. Right to Know brings us Narrative B. From obesity to diabetes to possible cancer ties, aspartame has long been linked to a slew of health issues. The FDA and other regulatory agencies need to take a closer look based on decades of disturbing scientific studies. In the meantime, consumers need to consider healthier alternatives immediately. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast is coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 13.2% of U.S. adults will have diabetes type 1 and 2 in the year 2032. Are we saying these diet sodas, a Diet Coke or something, for instance, is worse for you than that? Or is it worse for you than drinking water or nothing at all? Because that's what I really want to know. If I'm going to have a soda, should it be a regular soda or a diet soda. Are you down to about 14 sodas a day now? I knew you were trying to cut back. <laughs> yeah, well, 14 that 14 at the most. That's on a yeah. week, that's on a cheat day. Yeah. I got you. I keep okay. it single digits on during yeah. the week. <laughs> 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 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, July 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.